Slug Book Report, where we talk about books and literature of interest to LDS readers. I'm Andrew Hall, the Literature Book Review Editor at Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought, coming to you from Fukuoka, Japan. Today I'm joined by Charles Shiro Inoue, the author of Zion Earth, Zen Sky, a memoir recently published by the Maxwell Institute as part of their Living Faith series. Charles is a professor of Japanese literature and visual culture at Tufts University in Boston. Charles, welcome. Thanks. We're also joined by Ted Lee. Ted is a PhD student at the University of British Columbia's School of Information, studying professional identity formation and activism among archivists. Ted, welcome. Thank you. Welcome. Well, Charles, tell us, what was your goal in writing this book? Well, I haven't been good at keeping a journal, so I thought one thing I could do is make some kind of record of my more important experiences. And I was also very influenced by a, a conference talk by Brother Irene. He got the inspiration to write down the moments of spiritual influence in his life, and I just thought that would be a good idea, I guess. Pretty simple motivation. <laughs> An image throughout the book is the image of raking. Right. Explain to us what this idea is. So I recently remodeled my house and and I put a garage on it. And rather than look out the kitchen window at the top of my garage, just the regular rubber roof, I decided that I would put a, a Zen meditation garden there. We redesigned the structure so it will hold the weight of the sand and the water and we sloped it so it drains and everything else. So I had raking on my mind when I wrote the book. The comparison of uh, Latter-day Saint uh, culture and Zen culture centers around the, the idea of pushing the sort of the ideas of salvation down into the practical, physical realm. And I think there are similarities on both sides for focusing on the material and thinking that our lives, our interactions with the things of the world are actually a way to gain enlightenment and salvation. So raking is the physical act of um, acting on your faith. So you, you created a garden where it just has to be constantly upkept. There's a, there's a natural decay kind of built into this garden. Right. So you see a connection there. I see, you know, with God's creation of the of the world and our place in it. Yeah. So so it's a high maintenance kind of situation. It's sand. You know, it's not stainless steel. It's not granite or whatever. So that means that you have to get out there and rake it often. And I think that that is actually true to our experience. You know, we just because we raked our garden yesterday doesn't mean we don't have to do it again today. So our accomplishments, our successes, our, our righteousness doesn't last very long. <laughs> At least mine doesn't. <laughs> so I find like I have to do all this maintenance. And all we're trying to do is get to kind of a zero, a, pl a place of zero rather than plus one or plus two. The idea is that you don't try to shoot too high because if you try to get to two, then you're going to fall down to negative two. So the idea is just to get to zero and try to stay at zero if you can. Ted, what did you think about this idea of raking? Yeah, I loved it. I loved the, all the different metaphors and the ways of talking about this because for me, Latter-day Saint culture is all about that incremental progression and it can get really anxious like I, I love the idea of like the fact that we're supposed to be anxiously engaged but I already deal with so much anxiety in my life that sometimes that's really 
tiring. The point perhaps is not necessarily to be constantly adding on to like who we are as much as figuring out the basic core of who we are and kind of reducing all of our ambitions and thoughts and desires to kind of what is it that we're really looking for. And I think that peace, that inner peace and balance is something that a lot of us are looking for. That's really hard to find in a culture and a society that's always asking for more. So how much of of this Buddhist approach to life do you think came from your parents? That's a great question. I remember my, my father once speaking of another farmer down the road and uh, his, his criticism of this man was that he always was thinking of the end result. And that was a criticism of how he farmed. The point being that the focus should be on every moment of the crop that you're growing so that you don't, you're not always looking ahead. You're trying to actually do what you're doing at the time and focusing on it and getting it done well. So whether that is a Buddhist formed idea or not is is a great question. I'm not actually sure. But I think that the farming aspect of my parents' life was pretty important. Farming is crazy because you you have no guarantee that what you're gonna do is gonna actually work out. You know, you plant you plant a crop, but you don't know you're gonna harvest it. It's a crazy way to make a living. The hardest thing a farmer ever does is to grow a crop that you you don't harvest. What brought your family to Sigurd in Gunnison, Utah? My father was a businessman in the Bay Area. My mother was a dental uh, hygienist in uh, Washington State. When the war happened, Pearl Harbor happened, they happened to be sent to the same camp in Wyoming. And it turns out, I learned this just recently, that my mother was actually supposed to go to a different camp. She was supposed to go to Idaho. But when they got to Idaho, it was full. So they sent her on to Wyoming, and that's uh, where my parents met. They were both teachers in the Buddhist Sunday school program. They met. They got married. Lots of people did. You know, it was kind of dating paradise. All these young people with barbed wire around them and people with guns. The only thing you could do is, you know, become interested in each other. They got married and after the war was over, rather than go back to the West Coast, they decided they would play it safe and settle down in the middle of nowhere in Utah and, and live a quiet life with the Latter-day Saints. That's a that's an interesting choice. I mean, not playing it safe by going back where there's a community of other Japanese in California, but instead going off on their own in in Utah. Yeah, yeah. We didn't have a community really. Just you know, my my family, my relatives. We would get together quite often, and that helped. But there wasn't a big Japanese American community that we belonged to. Now, you explained in the book how your parents were not Mormon, but the children all went to the local primary and Sunday school activities and joined the church. And you say that this, you think this is kind of the, the heart of the church, it is not Salt Lake City, but these rural communities uh, south of Salt Lake City. Yeah. Why, why do you say that? I think there's a, a tension within our culture between the Joseph Smith imaginative, creative 
go ahead and take a chance school and the well-organized, modern, forward-thinking, you could even say colonial, Brigham Young School. And the fact that we call our, our main university Brigham Young University rather than Joseph Smith University is an interesting cultural point, I think. I think that, I think that Brigham Young's uh, influence is actually greater than Joseph Smith's. I have mixed feelings about that because I think that the the really interesting things about our our culture are things that Joseph Smith got started, and many of these things actually floundered under Brigham Young and and the later leaders of the the church. And in essence, they became our church became quite modern. I think of Brigham Young as a very modern minded person. And I don't think of Joseph Smith as a modern-minded person. And the whole idea of the Restoration was that we're trying to leap back over time and restore a, a primitive version of the, of the gospel and the church. I think that one of the things we're supposed to jump over as we jump backward is, in fact, the Enlightenment. But most, I would dare say that most Latter-day Saints align themselves with the Enlightenment and modern culture, which is too bad because modern culture is essentially secular and does not support their, their faith philosophically. So it creates this, this kind of logjam of thinking and sentiment that I think is just now coming to be freed up a little bit. What kind of logjam? Of- I don't know about you, Andrew, but I always felt like my... Life as a Latter-day Saint believer and my life as an intellectual were two separate projects. And I stayed out of trouble to the extent that I kept them separate. But what happened during my lifetime is that those two things both changed in a way that came to resolve that tension. So that now in, 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 the, in my field... Things like neo-animism and the, matu, the new materialism and the post-human, these are all kind of cutting-edge topics, which makes uh, Latter-day Saints uh, uniquely poised to have a huge contribution to the present moment. What they don't have is, I think, uh, a naturally easy way to contribute to the modern aspects of intellectual life. Neo-animism. Yeah. What is that? Well, neo-animism is the idea that we try to correct the way that our technological thinking has kind of deadened the world. This is something that Heidegger talked about. He called it instrumentalist thinking. The idea is that you, you think of everything as a tool for your function. Everything is centered on the human Everything is valued according to what it, how, its usefulness to people. That renders everything only important to the extent that it's what he calls standing reserve, available for our use. So everything is dead in that sense. And what he was calling for was a, a renewal of the life of things. The Frankfurt School people also had the same uh, idea. But the idea is that you recognize that the world of things is actually alive. 
And I think that that's a, an idea that Joseph Smith actually had, the, the notion that things are created spiritually before they were created materially, and that nothing that is material is not spiritual, and nothing that is spiritual is not material. Those ideas are ideas that kind of been put on the shelf for a while, but nowadays, you know, people are coming out and talking about them. Jim Faulkner, George Handley, Steve Peck, those people, yeah. Hmm. Kristen Blair. So, so if animism is a Shinto idea, yeah, and so you've brought in these these kind of Buddhist and Shinto ideas throughout the book, you know, based on your connection with Japan. So, how did you? Your parents didn't teach you Japanese, sounds like growing up, right. and maybe didn't have a a really strong connection. So, when how did you make this this connection with Japanese culture and, and Japanese religion? Well, that's a great question. Yeah, my parents were afraid that if we became Latter Day Saints. That we would forsake our Japanese uh, heritage, but it turned out that it only f- made us more aware of it because we all got sent to Japan. We all <laughs> learned Japanese, and um, in my case, I spent I spent my entire life studying Japanese culture. Uh, so that's one aspect of it. The, another one is the the regard for things that I think my parents had. Japanese animism is not well theorized. There's not a kind of a theology of it, but it's very deeply rooted in Japanese culture, and it's also a part of Japanese American life. You know, when I think about the way my parents felt about you know the the, the earth, about the plants that they were growing, the animals that they were living with. So I think I got that from them as well. It's it's kind of a sensibility more than anything. Who's the Japanese author who talks about simplifying your life these days? Koto Mari? Oh, the, Koto, what's her name? Clean up your house. <laughs> oh, yeah, Marie Kondo, yeah. Marie Kondo, right, right, right. Marie yeah. Kondo. And she talks about that. She talks about, you know, thanking these objects for their service. Yes. And when you dispose of them. Yeah, I think that's a great exercise, you know. I started doing that, in fact, trying to recognize the power of things by thanking my toothbrush or thanking the cup. My wife and I went to Kyoto once, and and we went to this tempura restaurant. And the waitress, I noticed that every time she came up to the table and took away some of the plates, she would pick the pick the bowl or the cup or the, whatever it was up and put it on her tray, but then she, she would touch each bowl and sort of turn it a little bit. You know, each one, just turn it a little bit, which, is, which reminded me of what you do in the tea ceremony. You, you turn the bowl, right? So what, what that made me think about is her regard for the cups. You know, she actually had a relationship and a respect for those cups that encouraged her to touch them and acknowledge them. And I think that that acknowledgement of, of the things, and here, here's a connection with raking again, is a way that the everyday becomes a source of inspiration and power. And it also helps us not get bored with things. I had a friend who said, the problem with the, uh, the Latter-day Saints is that they... They never learn anything. They just keep doing the same lessons over and over and over. 
and in a way he's he's right, you know, but in a way he's profoundly mistaken because it's by returning to these old lessons, the same old things, the same old chopsticks, the same fork, that we we gain depth, you know, in our appreciation for things. Ted, you've mentioned how you've also found ways to incorporate Buddhism and Confucian ideas into your own life. Yeah. The way I encountered Buddhism actually was through a high school teacher who taught a world world's religion class. And he was not Japanese. He was actually uh, white, but he practiced Buddhism. And so he had the lesson on Buddhism. And because it was what he practiced, it was really clear that he was passionate about it. And he had us like practice meditation in class. And I was really bad at it. <laughs> I have ADHD, so like it's very difficult for me to concentrate. But at the same time, uh, the way he talked about meditation was uh, it was so foreign to what I was used to in Latter-day Saint, which was like there wasn't really a purpose to become better. The idea of meditation was actually to let go of a lot of those desires, such as becoming better and to just be still and see what happens when and to be in the moment, right? And I think actually that there is a lot of correlation between Latter-day Saint theology and, and these Buddhist ideas of figuring out who you are and, and in a way even remembering. There's like instructions on how to do zazen, sitting meditation by Dogen. And uh, I referenced it in an article that I wrote in Sunstone where he says, make no intentions of becoming the Buddha. That was a very liberating idea for me because the concept was not necessarily that you just give up. It was more of you just have to remember that you're already there. And I think that's something that's unique to LDS theology, which is this idea that we existed before we came here. You know, we had lives, we were learning things. And then we come here and we might have forgotten that past life, but that it's still accessible in some way. And I think that idea of remember that you are already in your Buddha nature, like was a very liberating idea for me and helped me to kind of get over a lot of the perfectionism that can be really rampant in some LDO circles. When I was attending BYU, I remember that we had a lot of discussions in our Sunday school classes and so forth about the problems with perfectionism and how so many BYU students really struggled with perfectionism and the depression and anxiety that can follow with it. And I think that idea of, it's not that you're trying to achieve like a higher state. It's just to remember who you are, which is a, a thing that we talk about a lot, right? Remember that you're like a child of God. And once you realize that nature, then everything kind of falls into place. So it's not necessarily you have to change yourself to become better. Like you're already kind of, you just have to remember that relationship, right? Thank you, Ted. That's great. Charles, you mentioned the, um, the metaphor of the burning house yeah. is, is useful for your understanding of the gospel. Could you tell us a little bit about that? So the, the idea is that uh, in Mahayana Buddhism, which uh, emphasizes the ability to be saved and what Ted is calling Buddha nature, they characterize our present existence as a one that is constantly changing. The idea is called samsara, or constant change. And it causes a sense of anxiety in us and suffering, even to the point of where they would call this life, the metaphor is a, a house that's on fire. But the pr problem is that if you're in this house, you don't think it's burning. You don't think you're in a state of crisis. And it's only when somebody, you know, throws a barbecue and invites you to it and you leave your house 
your your pandemic isolation. <laughs> you step out the door and you look over your shoulder and you see that there's smoke coming out of the second floor windows. And you realize, oh my gosh, my house really is burning. So you gain this awareness of, of crisis. It's what Siddhartha learned when he left the palace and you know, he found, ran into someone who was sick, ran into someone who was old, and he would ask his parents, well, you know, I met this person with gray hair and wrinkled skin. What's that all about? And he finally realized that, you know, he had a very, very poor grasp of what it meant to be alive. So he left home, just like, you know, Adam left the garden, and we all leave our, you know, Heavenly Father to come here. And we start moving away from this burning house by way of the lessons that we learn about what is right and wrong. Choose the right, right? Choose the right path. And, and we think we're doing great. It feels good to know what is right, and it feels good to choose the right. But what happens to, to us is that eventually we, we realize that the path of justice, people getting what they deserve, actually causes great sorrow, much to our surprise. It doesn't feel good to think that everybody gets what they deserve because, you know, we're all flawed people. And so getting what we deserve means being punished to some degree. And so we, we have this moment of crisis. So we either have to push through that sorrow or we have to refuse to go through it and we just spend the rest of our lives in this state of justice. But if we're lucky, we, we have a, our fight with God. We turn away from God in anger, and this second turning allows us to reorient ourselves so that we're not looking at God so much as we're looking with God back toward where we came from, toward the suffering of the world. And and, and that's what changes us, and we realize that this fight that we had was actually supposed to happen, that we've reoriented ourselves, and we gain uh, condescension, we, we gain compassion, which is always balanced with justice. And all these tales about the end of the world, if you look carefully at them, they teach justice on the one hand, but they also teach compassion on the other. And so you learn that, and what you do is you come back down and around, and you go back to the burning house. It's like pinball. The only, the only thing you win is another game of pinball. <laughs> and you go back to, you know the house and you're, the, you're in there because you know your uncle Bob is sitting on the couch eating potato chips and watching the NFL or whatever and, and you need to get him out and so that cycle continues over and over and over so we, we don't play the get out of reality card you could that's, that's the nature of a bodhisattva you could go on to the western paradise the irony is that when you can leave the world you, you don't leave the world because you realize that by leaving the world, you miss the whole point of your existence, which is to help the world become a better place. This, this aspect actually really resonated with me in your memoir because a large reason why I decided to go into academia was because I wanted to like be clergy, but that's just not possible. I wanted to like live this monastic life, but that's not possible if you're, if you're growing up at LDS or if you join the church, right? The church doesn't allow you to leave the world. 
I have a lot of fe- feelings about that, obviously, because I've always wanted to live that life. But like academia is the closest, <laughs> I guess you could say, of living this monastic life of being isolated and, uh, and just focusing on your work or whatever. But I, over time, as I grew older, I, I, I started to appreciate that a lot more about the struggle of wanting to leave because the world is a, such an awful place sometimes. And you just want to get out of here once you realize what's happening and you realize the house is on fire, you want to get out of there. But eventually, like you said, the idea is that you want to get to a point where you you don't want to leave. You can't leave until everybody else is out because that's the point of, of like grace, of compassion. And this struggle that you talk about in your memoir, of like wanting to leave and then realizing that you can't or that's not the best thing for you is to, to just shut yourself away from the world. I re- it really resonated with me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, see, that's... That's my basic weakness, you know. My brother Dwight pointed it out one day. He said, the problem with you, Charles, is that you avoid people. And partly it was growing up in the middle of nowhere, being a farm boy and being very naive and very sort of socially clumsy and, and even shy. But as I grow older, I think that we can't use shyness as an excuse. Lots of us would rather check out and most of us, as we get older, spend more and more time with people who are more and more like we are, whether that's professionally or socially or e- economically. But that's the kiss of death, right? And that's the miracle of the church, because as an organization, it brings us, as you say, you know, back to earth. You know, you're, you're, you're assigned a friendship. You know, you're, you're supposed to take care of this person. And, and that's as artificial as they a thing as you can think of, right? But that falseness is what makes truth possible because it, it forces you to have a relationship with people that you wouldn't you wouldn't have one with. And that's exactly the the point of raking, you know. Sticking with something, sticking with somebody. And I think some of the best stories in, in your book are the ministering home teaching stories, various uh, relationships that you had with people that you, you, know, you might not have had. You know, there's not maybe a person that you have naturally been a friend with. And you had this faith crisis while you were at Stanford and you were thinking of leaving the church. But this kind of ministering played a role in your decisions. Can, can you tell us about right. that experience at Stanford? Yeah, well, so I decided at one point that I had missed the whole point of my mission. What Ted calls perfectionism got in the way and rather than learn how to love people, I learned how to check the boxes, you know, and obey all the, all the rules and whatever. And then in my disappointment, I decided that I needed to learn more about what the world is. And I got the idea that I would go to Stanford. So I transferred there and spent a lot of time immersing myself in study and becoming knowledgeable about the world. And as I did that, it I became more worldly myself, and I found it harder and harder for me to maintain my spiritual focus. And I decided that rather than drive myself crazy trying to keep all these balls in the air, that I would be honest about who I was and not pretend anymore. And so I decided that the best thing I could do would be to actually leave the church. That would be the honest thing to do, because it was just getting harder and harder for me to still stay in it. So I decided to leave and I went to sacrament meeting one last time and 
I heard the prayers one last time. I sang the songs one last time. I even took the sacrament one last time. And I was fully prepared to leave. And I, once the meeting was over, I scooted over to the end of the pew. And there was Dale Nielsen, my home teacher, standing right there. Dale was a brilliant uh, physicist and my home teacher, but also the Ellers Quorum president. And, and he knew what was going on. He could tell, you know, that I was suffering. And, and he asked me if I needed help. I said, no, I don't need your help. And he said, well, if you ever do, right, just let me know. And, and the thing about Dale is that he actually meant it. You know, he had, he had really embraced that mission of caring about people. And so I, I hurried to get out of the room. And just as I was about ready to turn the corner across the back of the room, up jumps Patricia Webb from the back bench. And she stands right in front of me and blocks my way. And with tears in her eyes, she says, Charles, have you forgotten me? How come you don't come and see me anymore? And in fact, I had forgotten her. In, in my focus on my own problems, I did forget about her. And I felt really bad. And in my mind, I was saying, you know, sorry, Patricia, but you're on your own now. I can't help you anymore, if I ever did in the first place. And rather than say anything to her, I can't believe I did this, but I just stepped around her. And I left the building. And I remember the feeling of relief I felt once I got outside. I just felt unburdened. And all these years of trying so hard to be a good Latter-day Saint, that burden was lifted from me. And I felt for a, a moment this sense of great relief. But as I was walking through the, the garden toward the parking lot, I heard this voice. And the voice says to me, what just happened? What, what just happened to you, right? You decided to do this, and then you were met by Dale Nielsen, and then by Patricia. Dale Nielsen was trying to love you. Patricia was trying to get you to love her. Isn't that where the focus should be? Not on your, you know, your angst about your philosophical complications. And because I heard that voice and because it made sense to me, I decided, because of the voice saying to me, look, focus on the loving part of it, and then all this other stuff will make sense someday. So I decided that I would take up that charge. And by the time I reached my pickup in the parking lot, I had decided that I would go back. And I've been going back ever since. And in fact... <laughs> miraculously over time because I focused on that you know raking things have come to make sense in a way even intellectually they, they make sense to me now that never would have happened what do you mean what, what makes sense to you now that that wouldn't be for well I hate to I hate to say it this way because it makes me sound like I'm crazy but I I think that all the doubts and all the questions that I've had in my mind all my life have actually come to some kind of resolution. 
you know, in a way that I, again, never would have expected. And it only did so because I was willing to listen to the Spirit leading me on to do this, that, and the other, which over time not only changed me and my mind, but God has changed the world. God has changed the intellectual culture of the Western world so that it now takes seriously the kinds of statements that Joseph Smith was making as, uh, you know, total absurdities in his own day. And I can't emphasize enough how this is a surprise to me. Can you give like an example? What's something you think that Joseph Smith said that the world now takes seriously? Okay, so when Joseph Smith writes about his experience, right, he says that Jesus talked to him, that he appeared as a person and named him personally and talked to him. And what Jesus said to him is kind of startling. He says, you know, regarding your question about which church to join, the world of religion has what he called a form of godliness. But they draw near to me with their words, but their hearts are far from me. So what that means, I think, is that what the Restoration was supposed to do was to address the issue of the form of godliness that was false. So the question in my mind is, what was that? What was that form? What is that form? Right? And I think, to put it, <laughs> to put it, you know, to give you the Reader's Digest version, I think the form of godliness is what we would call the modern symbolic order. The way that we mediate our relationship with the divine by way of symbols. So what I think is so refreshing about Japanese culture is that they will put a rope around a tree and, and say, that tree right there is divine, or that rock, or that waterfall, you know, the shimanawa. And, and that object, that sign is not a symbol because it's not pointing to something that's not here. And I think that what Joseph Smith was trying to relay was that this is what President Nelson talked about in the last conference when he said that we've never had a better opportunity to have a personally vital relationship with, with God. And by personally vital, I think that he means that we can actually have a, a relationship with the divine, not only with Jesus and Heavenly Father, our Heavenly Mother, but with all their creations, which were made for our benefit, you know, to make the, the purposes of living and, you know, finding our way in the world in a way that allows us to discover what is important and what is not. And finding God in all these things, finding God in these trees and the dogs yes. and the people around you. So that's animism. And, and the restored version of that is what we could call neo-animism. And of course, it's anathema to a positivistic view of the world, you know, a scientific view of the world. And for so many decades, I tried to make these ideas my 
animistic impulses on the one hand and my scientific impulses on the other. I tried to uh, reconcile them. And I think I pulled a few muscles in the process. <laughs> and I think there's a, certainly a need for science, you know, and, and a role for science. But to think that there aren't many other ways to, to view things is, is probably grossly mistaken. So does that answer your question? So yeah, I think we Latter-day Saints should be able to understand someone like Matsu Basho, the famous haiku poet, who said that, you know, if you want to write a poem about bamboo, you got to go to the bamboo. You know, Walter Benjamin said a similar thing when he said, if you want a picture of, you know, Van Gogh's Starry Night on your wall, you can have it on your wall. You take a picture of it, you bring it to your wall and put it there. But never forget that what you're missing, what you're leaving behind, is the aura of that painting. And the only way that you get that is if you go to the painting and you don't bring that painting to you. You know, you've got to go to the caves of Lascaux to understand really what those cave painters were up to. You can't just take a picture of it, represent it, put it in your book, put it on your wall. You know, <laughs> that's what we do in the in the modern world, and it's this is what Heidegger is saying: it killed the world, it made the world dead to us. So what we need to do is to go back to this primitive church, this primitive sensibility. You know, the idea that it's it's turning the water into wine. It's that world. So this is something that I've been thinking a lot about too. And some of the concerns that I have with, I guess, what I've been calling for a while ecclesiastical culture, this idea of replacing the real with forms and symbols to represent the real so that we don't have to interact with the real. At least for me, I feel like I've seen that a lot recently in LDS culture where we seem very concerned about using the right names or using the right words or, mm-hmm. or having the right ideas. Um, and in the process, end up kind of forgetting that behind these ideas, behind these words, behind these concepts are, are people and things with, with life and energy in them. And that there has been a lot of division and a lot of arguing amongst church members, um, and particularly in the American church with a lot of the political instability that we've been experiencing. Do you feel like that might be a solution is perhaps a return to move away from this idea of focusing so much on concepts and, and forms, which you call uh, a very modern idea. And you've mentioned that you feel like the church has kind of aligned itself with modernity and instead kind of move back towards this, maybe just a paradigm where you're interacting with the real or trying to interact as much as possible directly with the real, as opposed to yeah. words and concepts and like creeds and things like that. Yeah, well, well, the good news is that, you know, there's never been a better time to be a Latter-day Saint. And the reason I say that is because the modern period is basically over and something else is upon us. The bad news is that what this new thing is is confusing to lots of people. Essentially, what the postmodern world is is uh, a rejection of the modern system and a, a rejection of the ideas that 
everything could be organized and cleaned up, including primitive instincts like believing in things. We, we still believe in things. And in fact, my students do too. They, they've largely walked away from the traditions of their fathers, you know, whether they're Jewish or Catholic or whatever. But they'll say to me, I'm no longer Jewish, but don't get me wrong, I, I, I am a spiritual person. You know, I have a sense of what is spiritual, and I think that's important. So I thought about what these people are experiencing and what they're saying to me when they say that. What, what, what do they mean? And what I think they mean is that what they reject is the symbolic trappings of faith, basically religion writ large. They, they don't like that, but they do sense that there's something there to recoup. There's something there to preserve or renew or restore. And what that is is something very much more primitive, something more, I think, poetic, something more personal, something more concrete. And it coincides with the present crisis. And the present crisis is this, that if the postmodern conclusion is true, that is, we are actually different from each other, that diversity is our reality rather than a social program, if everybody is different, then how in the world do we come together anymore to get anything done? It makes us ask the question, what is the common denominator among us? It can't be nationalism anymore. It can't be political parties anymore. Those don't seem to be working. For some people, it's the you know New England Patriots or the Red Sox or whatever. But I think that there is actually one thing that we all share, regardless of whether we're conservative or, or progressive or whatever. And that is, we all take things from the earth in order to live. That's what we all do. We all take an apple and eat it. We all drink water. We all breathe the air. So if that is the commonality, that is the thing that we all share, then maybe that should be our real focus when it comes to who we are, what the purpose of life is, and so forth. In other words, I, I think we need to gain a, a better appreciation for what I call the power of things, whether that's the apple or the water or the tree or the rock. So on that very basic level, I think that we can come together and, and we can glorify our Father in Heaven and Jesus as the creators of these things. So how you say that this is the best time to be LDS in some ways, how does that fit in with that? Again, we're, we're not a, a modern reformation of Aquinas or whatever. We're not another version of God as symbol, God as idea. We don't believe that. We, we think that God is a person, hmm. right? It's a crazy idea. It used to be a crazy idea. Now it's completely reasonable in a way it hasn't ever been before. And we would be crazy not to point that out, that President Nelson said that we ought to have a personally vital relationship with God. That means that we argue with God rather than argue about God. This means that we write our memoirs about our lived experience with the angels, 
rather than write theor- theological treatises about the nature of God and so on. Not that that's valuable, but you get my point that if God is your father, if you wrote a book about your father, would you write a treatise about your father's nature? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> You'd write a book about the time that he took you sw- swimming or you know, how you, you visited Salt Lake City together or whatever. And so you mentioned in the burning house analogy that part of it is turning against, arguing with God, and by doing that, you start to gain his perspective. So, so, so this kind of struggle is a big part of actual spiritual growth. Yeah, I, I think you have to argue with God. I think you'd, be, you'd probably be disingenuous if you, in your progression towards understanding God's nature, you didn't come to a point where you actually had to make, have that fight with God. Because it's kind of a fight with your misunderstanding of what God is. And it's what allows you to turn around and align yourself, realign yourself so that you're not, you're, you're not making a fetish of your relationship with the divine, but you're accepting the fact that that's your nature too. So to use Ted's words, you know, we do have this Buddha nature and it does make us inclined to go back to the burning house. But everything about Western culture has been, not everything, but so much of it has been trying to confuse that issue. Make, it makes justice, for example, the ultimate goal of society, but justice cannot be the goal. Justice is like, it's like food, I say. You know, without it, we die, but if we have too much of it, we also die. When Noah jumped off his ship and his feet landed in the mud... He didn't celebrate. It was a moment of tremendous sorrow for him. And he makes God promise him that he will never do such a thing again. It's that argument that you, you see here and there, everywhere. Jacob 5, the person who takes care of the garden. God sets him up and he says, I'm going to burn everything down. And I think he doesn't want to, but he, he wants to create that situation. So it gives the gardener the opportunity to say, hang on, do you really want to do that? That's that magical moment when the, the caretaker of the garden changes. He, he becomes a mediator for the garden. And, and that's what we're supposed to be becoming. You know? We're supposed to be becoming mediators, you know, always arguing for the, the benefit of those who make mistakes, which is, which is all of us, myself, <laughs> foremost among them. My experience growing up in the church is pretty inverted, actually, to Charles's situation. And yet, at the same time, there was a lot of resonance with what he was talking about. Because for you, Charles, like your parents left the internment camps bitter about what had happened to them and moved away from the people that betrayed them and, and wanted to live by themselves. And you were kind of cut off from this larger Japanese American community and so forth. Um, whereas my parents joined the church before I was born. And we're very active in the Korean American uh, LDS community in the Seattle area. So I grew up like going to church sometimes like for six hours uh, every Sunday because we go to like our local board and then we go to the, the Korean branch. So I was very saturated in, in the church, uh, church culture. And so like we kind of have these maybe polar opposites because like my parents also moved to America looking for opportunities, being grateful for like kind of the opportunities that America had to offer. But at the same time, there was a lot of resonance and kind of like feeling disconnected sometimes from your 
your parents' culture, um, trying to figure out where your place is, um, living in these two worlds, never really fully living in either world uh, and growing up in that way. And I thought that was just really interesting to see how that kind of plays into your own spiritual growth. It definitely influenced the way that I thought about religion and lived faith and practice and spirituality and so forth. It's a thing that we don't really talk about often in at least the American church. I think if we were really honest for a long time, the American church dialogue has been very dominated by white-centric narratives, which is, you know, those narratives are valid, but there has it's been very top-heavy towards, towards that one demographic. And so I just at least personally found it really refreshing to read a memoir from someone who, even though they had very dissimilar experiences growing up at the same time it felt very similar and very relatable and i just found that really refreshing and valuable Mm, that's interesting i i wonder you know andrew you live in the part of the world where my ancestors are from and you've made the decision to live there and work there and so i'm curious about how you feel about being a, a member of the church in in kyushu i mean well, we're in a, in a small ward here. The church in Japan, I think, went through a lot of growth in, say, from the 50s to the mid-90s. And it really has stalled out, unfortunately, since the mid-90s with the Am Shinrikyo attacks in the subways. And I think there's just, compared to when I was a missionary in the late 80s, when there was a lot of curiosity about religion and new ideas, you know, religion and anything kind of out of the mainstream took a real hit at that point. And there's a lot of distrust of any kind of different way of looking at the world. And so there's not been very much growth, I don't think, since the mid-90s. Getting older, aging branches and small wards around the one strong ward. I just love living in Japan. (laughs) I love living here. We actually were, we recently built a house in the outskirts of Fukuoka, right next to a temple where Eisai lived for several years before and after going to China and studying Zen Buddhism. So I think I think a lot about Zen Buddhism being here. Mm. But what does it mean to me spiritually? I don't know. Um, my kids, I think we, we tried to create a place with seminary and, and talking about gospel ideas. But there's so few youth here, unfortunately, like I say, with this aging, aging wards that it's hard to make the gospel feel important to them because they don't really have a lot of contacts outside of our you know, our family things and in this ward full of very old people, which they find hard to, to connect with. Given the neo-animistic turn that the world has taken, I think that the strategy in Japan might be to go right at that, that sensibility and do something more performative, like LDS versions of Matsuri, dancing, giving young people the opportunity to interact with each other and with the world. I think that might be the, that might be the pressure point rather than a lot of the other things we've been trying to do, including make Japanese love Western culture so that they, they feel like they're more at home as Latter-day Saints. I just think we need to have more fun at it. I spent two years knocking on doors and it was not fun. I see the good in moving towards this family-centered church and family centered study, and it's it's great. But yeah, I think we've we've kind of lost this. I talked to older Japanese people, and t- they joined the church in the 70s and the 80s because of this 
you know, people were hanging out at the church all day long and they were spending time with each other and they were doing these activities and making things and creating performances. And a lot of that's gone away. And now, of course, with COVID, you know, it's really going away. And Yeah, I think about my experiences with the Korean branch that I grew up with that's still, still kicking, still around, and my parents are still active in it. It's a really interesting kind of compare and contrast, I suppose. As the church has changed quite a bit in the last 20 years, we have seen this move towards kind of the, the family-centric, less maybe less board activities. I would argue maybe even kind of a disenchanting of kind of these folk practices that various local places had developed, such mm-hmm. as like, uh, you know, these big extravagant like missionary homecoming and farewell kind of celebrations, which, you know, for better and for worse. But the Korean branch is kind of just, I don't know if they just chose to ignore, if they got permission or what have you, but they just kind of continue doing a lot of community activities outside of just like sacrament meeting and Sunday school and and so forth. They just kept that up. And I I think it does contribute to a stronger close-knit community, but also the problem that I had seen, at least when I was still living in um, the Seattle area, is that a lot of these wards, because uh, young people my age, uh, we move a lot because it's harder and harder to afford buying a home and, and having some kind of stability. Uh, we're always moving from job to job that we just keep hopping uh, from ward to ward. And it's really difficult to develop this kind of uh, tight-knit community relationships when you're always picking everything up and moving. And there is a kind of familiarity and that like a lot of the wards kind of function the same so like as you move into a new ward you know it's like okay like there's a lot of things that are familiar and kind of ease in easily but it also contributes i feel like to this sense of breakdown in the community because it's so much harder uh for people to stay put in one place and develop those ties that take time to to develop there's a lot of challenges i feel but i do feel like the church has some really interesting unique like home teaching, I think is, is actually like a really interesting program that could help combat some of those broader social problems, so to speak. It's interesting to see how the church has changed um, and then to kind of see the this community that I was part of, this Korean branch, also kind of take different strategies that were more community-centric because of their culture and see how that has contributed to various strengths that they have that I don't necessarily see in other wards, but also maybe, you know, some pitfalls or weaknesses and so forth. Um, I love the poetry in your, in your book, Charles, the way that you would break up these vignettes and stories with these poems of yours that kind of encapsulate that story into just a few lines. I, I just really enjoyed that. I was wondering if these were poems that you've been writing kind of throughout your life, or did you write them as you write the book? So I teach this course called Intro to Japanese Culture. One year, I asked my students, of all the things we read, which did you appreciate the least? And they all said the thing that they really didn't like much was the the haiku of Matsuo Basho. And I thought, oh my gosh, that's tough. Because (laughs) if you teach an Intro to Japanese Culture class and they don't like Basho, then you're probably doing something wrong, right? So I retooled my, my entire uh, syllabus, and I designed it so that, if nothing else, they would learn to appreciate basho and haiku, because I think that, that there's something very essentially important about that brief three-line poem. 
And one of the things I started doing was I asked them to write haiku. And I, and I gave them the assignment, you know, I want you to go out in the world and I want you to experience the world in a way that makes you have a, a, a moment when you have this heightened awareness of your relationship with the world. And I want you to document that experience very simply in, the, in this haiku. So in other words, the, the poetic part of the poetry is the experience of the world rather than the, the writing of the poem. So let's not think of it as word candy. Let's not try to uh, even describe the world anymore. Let's just honestly say what happened or show what happened. And it takes about eight weeks for my students to learn how to do this. But it's, it's really an interesting exercise that teaches them to have a different view of reality. Because now instead of just drifting through life, they have their antenna out and they're waiting to feel something. And I tell them that if this week you didn't feel it, don't write a poem. Just say, I didn't feel anything this week. <laughs> and they don't get penalized or anything for not doing that, right? I say, okay, if you didn't feel it, that's, that's a part of the learning process. But eventually they, they do start feeling it, right? And I, I think that haiku is a really good thing to focus on because, <laughs> for better or for worse, it's, it's something that everybody thinks they can do, whether they're football players or uh, kindergarten students or college-aged people. Everybody thinks, well, okay, three lines of a poem, I can do that. That's not so hard. So if you can find something that everybody thinks they can do, and if you can teach them how to do it, in a way that actually reorients their, their brain cells so that they're picking up on the, the, the divine nature of both themselves and their environment, then that's a huge win, right? And it occurs quite outside any kind of religious movement. So what I have in mind, actually, you know, as we speak, is starting a movement where I'm going to find 10 people and I'm going to teach these 10 people how to write haiku. And I'm going to teach them so well that they can each get 10 people to teach. And they're going to teach those 10 people so well that those 10 will be able to teach another 10. And it'll just sort of you know, expand that way. And, and the idea is that what will happen is we'll have a uh, a restoration or a renewal, you know, to come back to the other theme of Joseph Smith's project, so that we're going back to this new postmodern neo-animistic uh, worldview that's going to bring people closer to um, a few things. One, to, to, the, to the world itself, but also to who they are as people with divine natures. And also to, you know, Heavenly Father, to Jesus, to these other people who have made this world possible for them. So I think that's one way to do it. You know, it might be a crazy project and it may go absolutely nowhere. But um, this book and the, and the success of this book has, has, has made me think that I need to do some as a next move to take advantage of what's happened 
this might be the time and the thing to to actually do. I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> yeah. I think that'd be great. So saving the world one poem at a time kind of thing. <laughs> so did you write these all for the book or, or did you, like, in the moment of these things? Yeah, I wrote these for, for the book. I mean, it's, it's kind of cheating. It's going against my own rules. But, I, but sometimes, you know, I was remembering the past and trying to remember the moment that created this yeah, sure. uh, feeling in me. And then I tried to document the feeling. It felt like the narrow road, the narrow road to the north with the, the prose sections and then a poem interspersed in it, the haibun. Yes, because the, the poems are these moments and the moments have a context. So the prose establishes the frame. I was walking, I was walking out of the cafeteria and I saw the squirrel run across the, the lawn. And then you have the poem. But that's basically Japanese literature, right? It's just poem, frame, poem, frame, poem, frame. I find that much easier to enjoy poetry that way than just a, a book of poetry, which is where it's just poems and you don't know the context. I really, I like that yeah. Japanese style of having the context for. Well, thank you very much. This has been great. Thank you for listening to Dialogue Book Report. This show is produced and edited by me with additional editing and music by Daniel Foster-Smith. Our content manager is Emily Jensen. This show is part of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent podcasts which promote thoughtful and engaging discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, and arts and culture, including shows like Face and Hat, featuring Aaron Brewster and Eric Jepson. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Well, Charles, thank you so much for talking with us today. You're welcome. It was a lot of fun. And Ted, thank you. Thank you. This was quite an opportunity. Beyond the Block, part of the Dialogue Podcast Network, is a weekly Come Follow Me podcast that centers the marginalized in Mormonism. Join Brother Jones and Brother Knox, a Black Lifelong member and a queer convert theologian, respectively, as they read the scriptures through the lenses of their identities and others in an effort to bring the culture of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints closer and more in line with its theology, which centers Christ's justice and compassion. New episodes every Monday. Dialogue Podcast Network.